Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. I'm Shomak Khoshal, the books editor of Mint Lounge, and this is the Lounge Bookcast. Every week, I'm going to speak here with one author from across the world about their latest book, how they came to write it, what were their challenges and inspirations. and what does it mean to be a writer in this time this podcast is from hd smartcast india's fastest growing podcast producing platform this week my guest is award winning poet curator cultural theorist translator ranjit hoskote and we'll be talking about his latest collection of poems hunch prose the poems in hunch prose speak in many voices in the lyric mode as long narrative poems experimental verse they refer to the events of the distant past and the urgent present they look forward to the future of the earth and human condition above all they seek anchors in a world riven by climate change and the pandemic i'd love for ranjit to tell us about the genesis of this book when and how these poems were written and the sequence in which you have arranged them So Mark it's a great pleasure to be in conversation with you and thank you so much for inviting me uh to talk about uh my new book Hunch Prose and for your questions I wrote Hunch Prose over 2019 and 2020 and uh it really was a response to a number of the urgencies that I think all of us felt during that period uh it was really uh well underway before the pandemic and the lockdowns kicked in uh and the urgencies that i felt were in any case building up to a certain point uh, there was the entire chaos of climate catastrophe which was very much with us at that time and i had this compelling feeling that as a species we were ruining our habitat beyond uh, redemption there was also the violence the tragically and increasingly normalized violence uh in our own country uh, a society divided against itself there was to me also the question of language what was happening to language it was being debased it was being used for entirely violent divisive purposes how can one reclaim language and there was the question of what one can do as a poet in the midst of these these vast uncertainties and dilemmas so it was out of these anxieties and uncertainties that really i wrote the book so i actually wanted to come to a very literary question before we got into the themes of the book which is to talk about the beautiful title of the book you know hunch prose and you have a knack for coining these lovely compound words your previous book was called jonah whale and i wondered like how these coinages happen in your work it's really an effect of my journeys among other languages i'm very very fond for instance of the old anglo-saxon uh, device the kenning how do you create these descriptors that are quite surreal in the way they bring two quite different things together uh i'm also very fond of compound words both in sanskrit and in german languages which as a translator i spend a lot of time working with and i think that it's also for me a deep desire to recraft and recalibrate language 
uh, not just for the sheer joy of creating new words, but Jonah Whale, for instance, was a way of thinking about how the individual and the system are fused in, in ways that can't easily be taken apart. So it's not Jonah and the whale, but it's in fact Jonah Whale. Hunch prose for me was really a way of thinking about how poetry is somehow seen as a kind of a poor cousin of prose. Uh, what is the poet's place and role? What is the impact of the poet in a time that is dominated by nonfiction, by reportage, by the news cycle, by the buzz of data? So what can this um, quaint genre really hope to achieve? So these were the kinds of ironic, playful questions that I had in mind. And at the back of my mind was also the figure of Quasimodo the hunchback of Notre Dame. How can it be that someone who is seemingly ill-favored yet produce this, the music of the carillon, the bells that resound across the city from the cathedral? So these were some of the, some of the images and ideas that went into the title. And the title poem, Hunch Prose, is really cast uh, as a kind of dialogue that the poet has with his Prose rivals. I think dialogue is very interesting in your poetry because um, your poems are also in dialogue with the past, constantly interrogating the past and the present. And uh, you also use a very thickly elusive language, you know, like a lot of your poems make sense uh, when you look at the notes and you go back and think on them. So I just wanted to ask you about this, uh, you know, intersection of history and poetry in your work. You know, how, do, how does that happen? And if you could tell us a little more about that. Sure. Uh, I think the concern with history has, for me, been uh, really foundational in many ways, because it's, um, it's something that also informs uh, my essays. And in general, it comes from a commitment to bearing witness to our plural pasts. I think we are living through a time when we're increasingly being asked to subscribe to a narrow, singular, monochromatic view of the past. And from my point of view, what brings us uh, a true and rich sense of who we are comes precisely from the diversity, the contradictions, the kaleidoscopic plurality that we inherit. So this, if you will, uh, uh, enlarged and amplified sense of the past is something that's absolutely real to me. And it's part of the material from which I make my poetry. This could mean reaching out in a transcultural sense and embracing crises and dilemmas and predicaments that may, on the face of it, seem to have nothing to do with us here in South Asia. Uh, or it could take the form of returning particularly to other languages in which experience has been shaped in India. And increasingly, that's coming through uh, in, in the new poems for me. Uh, what does it mean to return to a Nirguni Bhajan of Kabir's, for instance? How does that inform the way I look at the world today? What does it mean to go back to Bandishis of, uh, of Tumri's or Kajri's? And what kinds of experience does that make available today? Because the past doesn't go away, as we know uh, only too well. And, these pasts continue, they persist, they live, and they actually shape our present. And I think we have to confront that. You know, you're uh, talking about language actually puts me in mind that uh, you are also a translator. And 
I wonder if it complicates your sense of uh, writing in English because you have this clash of languages in your head. I imagine when you're writing, uh, when you know you're creating imagery, when you're creating new words. How is that experience of handling English as a language once you are sort of you know alert to so many other nuances? Uh, you know, Somak, I grew up in. Uh, in a multilingual environment at home in the family for all kinds of historical reasons. The family has uh, spoken, read and written English really since the end of the 18th century. So there's for generations never been a sense that English is in any way an alien language. So that's a historical crisis that I've personally uh, never suffered from. So it was never a question of a choice. And in that sense, I think it's also continuous with the vibrant multilingualism that we've always had in South Asia. So that's where I come to this language from. But as a young Anglophone poet, I went through a period of having to be defensive about writing in English, because you were always told, especially when you went to multilingual readings or at literary conferences, there were enough people to tell you that, you know, this is a sign of your alienation and uh, all the rest of the stuff that we've heard over the decades. So I think for the first uh, a decade and more of, of my career as a poet, this was the position that I came from. I needed to defend the fact that I was an Anglophone poet. But really over the last 10 years, I've moved away from that position because I just said to myself, I'm not for ideological reasons going to exclude from my own work in English, everything else that I inherit, the Hindustani classical music, that I love, the other languages that I speak and read. And it's, it's really that uh, act of giving myself permission to bring these languages into what I do in my poetry. It's produced this. So rather than seeing this under the sign of stress or conflict or clash, for me, it's just the freedom I've given myself to let my cultural confluences come into my, my writing. And it's been, uh, in that sense, it's been, uh, you know, it's been artisanal delight for me to also let my work as a translator inform uh, my work as a poet. And the 20 years that I apprenticed myself to Lal Dead, for instance, that has, I have to say, been transformative for me. It's been an experience of learning from Lala, from the wisdom traditions, uh, from these languages, from Kashmiri, from Braj. Uh, and that has been... That has, that has really been a liberating experience. It's been a liberation from the kinds of ideological non-issues under which Anglo, Anglophone poets have had to labor for far too long. It's very fascinating that you know, your other uh, life as a curator and art critic and writer also informs your writing probably because there are poems addressed to poor painters and artists. And I was wondering, you know, what does looking at art teach you about looking at the world? And vis-a-vis uh, -vis that, you know, what does it teach you about looking at language and writing? I think both translation and my life in the visual arts have taught me humility. And, uh, you know, it seems strange to, to announce this moral virtue as, 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 as a kind of literary virtue, but I'll, I'll try and parse that. I think it's, it's really a lesson in how you have to break and remake yourself with every encounter with something that's other and with which you're engaging, 
whether it's another language, the work of another poet, the work of a painter or sculptor. And uh, you yourself have long written on the arts and you know how it is to come face to face with a piece of visual art and uh, have it challenge your linguistic capacities. And there's a resistance to interpretation that visuality puts forth. How do you find the words for that? How do you find new ways of engagement? Uh, I find myself constantly replenished by, by the work of artists. And uh, also because some of these artists are also friends, they're people I've known for most of my life. Uh, there's also uh, all of that, all of the invisible uh, uh, dialogues, the dialogues that don't come out into the public sphere, but they inform uh, often the poems that I've dedicated to, to such friends, whether it's Ranbir Kaleka or Atul Dodia or Meli Gobai. So for me, these are ways of uh, acknowledging and, and uh, showing my appreciation for uh, figures who've inspired me. It's uh, very beautiful the way you talk about art and language and the intersection of the two almost creates the alchemy of poetry for you. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite poems in this collection is the first one, which is Sidi Mubarak Bombay. And uh, it's a narrative poem. It's kind of a story poem, as it were, poem in prose. And uh, the character comes alive beautifully. And, and there is that clear sense of that man struggling to find home. In, in language, in memory, in visuals. Uh, I'd love to hear a little more about that poem, you know, uh, how you wrote it and what inspired it. Thank you so much for your, for your very sensitive reading of that poem, Somak, because uh, that is what I've tried to do. It's, as you so beautifully said, it's somebody who's trying to find a home in language. And uh, the figure of Siddhi Mubarak Bombay has been with me for nearly 20 years. Uh, he sprang out of the work that my friend and also co-author of a book we did together called Confluences, the German novelist Ilya Troyanov. Uh, it came from the work that Ilya was doing on uh, Richard Burton, the Victorian explorer. So Ilya eventually wrote a novel called The Collector of Worlds, which is about Burton. And the figure of Siddhi Mubarak was absolutely amazing to me. I knew that Bombay had been a slave city. It's not something anyone talks about much, you know, for, a, for the longest time, the history of Bombay was there was a cotton city. Then we've come to admit that it was an opium city, but we are not yet talking about its role in the slave trade on this side of the world. So I was intrigued by what I read of Siddhi Mubarak. The fact that he was of East African origin, that he was sold into slavery in Bombay, that he lived here in my city, that he gave himself the name Bombay. He named himself after the city because this is where he grew up. He came here as a child slave. And uh, then there's this amazing story of how he's emancipated. He goes back. He makes a new home for himself in Zanzibar. And I just thought to myself, how might we think about this enslaved person and then this emancipated person. What might, be, what might we learn from such an experience of trauma, of suffering, but also of dramatic reinvention? So in the course of the poem, uh, you see how he navigates between languages, crafts a new way of speaking. Uh, I've put in some forms of first language interference. And then he becomes this amazing figure a guide to explorers like Stanley, to, to Burton, Livingston, Speak, 
and really plays a key role in all of these explorations that open up the so-called dark continent. So it was also a way of acknowledging the presence of Sidi Mubarak Bombay and demonstrating his heroism, which in Victorian accounts gets relegated to the footnotes. So to me, he was a key figure, more than the explorers who, whose guide he was. Without him, there would have been no explorations. My other question to you actually was about this idea of between worlds. Uh, basically, your poems uh, are very much rooted to this world of climate change and politics, but they're also sort of, you know, talking at another level. How do you navigate these distances and uh, how do you think a poet should respond to what's going on around us at the moment? So Mark, in response, I'm going to read this very short poem called Port of Call. Listen, this world is two, one world of spirits, one world of water and earth. I was always trying to escape. You were the fruit of anchorage, not me free in seven floating lines. So I've always been fascinated by this beautiful image in one of Amitav Ghosh's uh, nonfiction books uh, uh, about dancing in chains. Uh, and I've always thought about uh, uh, what it means to be a poet and to have certain measures of relevance and of connection and yet to have the freedom to be quixotic, to be eccentric, to explore things that might seem to be beyond the horizon. So to me, it's, it's, uh, it's living between these worlds, uh, to be fully involved in the laukika or the worldly, but to also gesture towards experiences that demand language. And here I'm also going to invoke something that Joy Goshami said in, a, in an interview at one point where he talks about how he feels the need to completely reinvent his language in response to new situations and uh, when he's embarking on a new book. And I remember reading that a long time ago and thinking to myself, uh, this is a very precise formulation of what in fact happens, but you need to have the courage to to remake your language in this way. And I, and I think I've really been inspired by what Joyda says there. So whether it was Jonah Whale, whether it's Hunch Prose, I think this has been my project, if you will, to not hold on to an achieved language because I'm pleased with it, but to really see how my language can be broken up and remade in the face of fresh challenges from the world or both worlds. May I ask you to read one of your poems, favorite poems from the book? Since we have been talking about two worlds, two choices, uh, this, this metaphor of the, the fork in the road, let me read a poem called Table. Always make place at the table for the guest who walks in with a peony, who's exchanged his drawl for a twang, who once sliced the moon in half with a whistle, who struck a vein of gold in his sleep, who goes red in the face laughing at his own jokes, and for the guest who left the house 40 years ago with a wooden bowl and a vow of silence. One brings you a charter of demands, the other a chaplet of sky flowers. 
Thank you for listening in. Tell us what you think at HD Smartcast. We are present on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. To listen to more podcasts, log on to www.htsmartcast.com or suno naye nazariya se. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.